0: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, It's a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care.
2: Hi Chris, good to talk again. Um, As usual, lots to talk about. Um, We had housing data, housing completion data for Ireland for the final quarter of this year. I want to give a run through that because I think it's really interesting. We had a number of significant data releases from the United States today, all feed into that narrative about growth being a little bit stronger than expected. Um, we have some big interest rate decisions coming up from the US Federal Reserve and indeed from the European Central Bank. And I guess the only point of argument around both of those meetings is whether it's going to be a quarter or a half percent increase in rates. Uh, you want to talk about the war on drugs in the United Kingdom at the moment. Um, I think it would be remiss of us, given what we've discussed in the past few podcasts about Pascal Dunno, who's um, election expenses and so on and some significant revelations about Sinn Féin's election expenses have come to light also over the past couple of days and I guess the moral of the story is there that uh, people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones um, Rishi Shunak is having an away day um to look at economic recovery and all of that stuff and um you have given that Uh, You have so much spare time on your hands. You've been fooling around with chatbots again. And you want to, um, I think, share some of your findings
1: to this dinosaur here and to our other listeners. Yes, thanks, Jim. Uh, But let's start with the economics. And in the United States, as you rightly said there, we've had a continuation of either just stronger or mildly stronger than expected news. And it's worth reiterating that towards the end of last year, only a few short weeks ago, the consensus amongst the economics and other forecasters uh, was very, very gloomy indeed. And the only question on everybody's lips was when does the recession start? We should say at the outset that there could still be a recession in any one of a number of countries this year. But so far in these very early days of 23, so far, so good. Q4 GDP the data for the United States preliminary data for the whole economy said that on an annualized rate the way the peculiar way the Americans do it the, in the Q, fourth quarter of the year the United States economy grew by 2.9% versus an expected 2.6%. So it was one of those mildly better than expected data points and of course nowhere near a recession because in the third quarter the US economy grew by 3.2%. So it has decelerated a touch but is coming in mildly stronger than expected. Underlying demand in the economy, though, it has to be said, is on the weak side. It was consumption mostly that seemed to hold up reasonably well, not at a stellar pace, but the consumer is still alive and kicking in the States. One of the things that was very weak was the residential investment, and that's a housing market story, which I think will provide a nice segue into your discussion of the Irish data. And for the anoraks out there, inventories, stock building was quite strong. And that can usually be a forerunner of some weakness when if inventories or stocks of finished goods or indeed intermediate goods are involuntarily piling up at companies, it means that they're not selling. And uh, that might be well worth watching all of that is consistent with uh, going into next week's Fed meeting, I think, with a discussion about what is the right interest rate increase for them to do. The market is expecting a quarter. Some leading commentators, Mohammed El-Aryan in particular, who is, for the financial market types listening to this forecast, that name will be very familiar. He's a very, very well-known, very good commentator on financial and economic affairs, And he thinks that the Fed should definitely do, or at least he's suggesting that they should do, 50 basis points, half a percentage point. So there's still some debate about what the Fed's going to do. The market still seems to expect a quarter. But I think that this strong data, plus a couple of other things I know you want to mention uh, briefly, uh, certainly leans into that feeling that maybe they could go a half, Jim.
2: Yeah, as you say, Chris, and have explained, the GDP number was a little bit stronger than expected and recession avoided, uh, or at least negative GDP growth. Um, there were three other pieces of data today which tell a roughly similar picture. New home sales were at a four-month high, okay, coming off a low base, but still, when you hear a statistic being described as a four-month high. That does suggest a semblance of strength and optimism. US durable goods orders. This is orders for manufacturing goods with a life of more than three years up 5.6% during the month, which was significantly stronger than expected and is indicative of um, a manufacturing growth. And finally, the weekly initial jobless claims, this is basically the number of people signing on for unemployment benefit, fell to a nine-month low. So Many indicators of economic activity actually suggesting a US economy that's growing at a reasonable rate. And uh, you would not be at all surprised if the Federal Reserve did decide to deliver a half percent rather than a quarter next week. I, I, I think the narrative from the Federal Reserve will be that, you know, real levels of economic activity are still uh, pretty vibrant. The housing, sorry, the labour market is still pretty strong. So further interest rate increases appropriate. And as I say, the only question really is, will it be a quarter or will it be a half percent? And uh, you'd have to think that the bias is slightly towards a half percent rather than a quarter at this juncture
1: Okay, well, that's uh, that's an interesting call, Jim. Um, it'd be in- very fascinating to see which way the market goes over the next while. If it starts to go in that direction of half a percentage point, I would have thought that we'd expect to see things like the equity market weakened from its reasonably strong start to the year. Because one of the things that's encouraging people to think that things are a wee bit better than that bleak consensus had it is that equity markets, stock markets everywhere, have had a, a really good start to the year. So I don't think that they would like 50 basis points, however. So let, let's uh, keep a very close on, eye on that as we go forward. It's not just the States there's been some numbers from, Jim. I think we've had some Irish housing numbers. Is that right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And be- before I get on to that, just to briefly mention the European Central Bank's interest rate deliberations, Um the consensus is growing and there's a lot of commentary from important officials in the European Central Bank suggesting that an increase of a half percent would be appropriate at the upcoming February meeting. So that would see the base rate go from 25 to 3%. Um, that appears to be the consensus view at the moment. Um, of course, the European Central Bank could always turn around and do what it did on the 15th of December and deliver a quarter, but there is a bias here towards a half percent also. There's a sense now, I think, from central bankers, and you know, if we're right and if the Fed and the ECB deliver a half percent increases, uh, basically I think they're trying to speed up the process get the tightening out of the way as quickly as possible and have most impact on the economy and on inflationary expectations by doing that. Here in Ireland, um, we 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 spoke at great length last week um, in a podcast that I found particularly interesting about the housing market. Uh, we got further data today for the housing completions for the final quarter of 2022. Um, 9,148 residential dwelling units were completed. That's up 31.4% on the previous year. Okay, so strong numbers in the final quarter. And if you look at 2022 as a whole, 29,851 dwelling units completed. That's up 45.2% on 2021 and up 41.3% on pre-COVID 2019. So a strong, strong recovery in housing completions coming through. And I think it's interesting to look at the breakdown of what was built in 2022. Housing schemes um, accounted for 50.8% of the total and up almost 42% on the previous year. Apartments accounted for 30.7% of the total, up 78.7% on 2021. And indeed, um, 2022 saw more apartments being completed than in 2020 and 2021 combined and I think you can see that uh, driving around Dublin particularly where 60% of the completions are occurring um, a lot of apartment developments um, currently being delivered and then the final part of the housing scheme or the housing equation are single houses um, accounting for 18.5% of the total last year, up 16.6%. So these are strong numbers, Chris. And um, just to put it in context, between 2020 and 2021, we delivered an average of 12,135 dwelling units. Okay, So 2022, then a total of 29,851. But if you consider That we need, depending on who you listen to, we need somewhere between 40 and 60,000 dwelling units to be delivered every year out to 2030 to close that imbalance between supply and demand. So it shows there's still a lot of work to do. Uh, But, you know, I I think even the greatest sceptics would have to admit uh, that that was a pretty decent year. The construction industry certainly delivered a high level of housing. Uh, But I... Looking at forward looking indicators such as housing commencements, commencements and planning permissions, uh, there is a suggestion that we're starting to see some easing of growth. And that easing of growth is down to two things one is capacity in the construction sector, and secondly, is just the general cost of delivery, uh, materials prices, um, labor costs, etc. Still pretty high. Um, one final um, lump of data that m- might be interesting. Um, I was I was just looking at the breakdown between 2011 and 2022. Um, over that period, 163,371 dwelling units delivered. Scheme housing accounted for 50.5 percent. Single housing 50.5 um, percent. Sorry, the 50.5 is wrong actually. Um, apartments 18.7. So that's 60 so that's roughly sorry single accounted for about 32 percent of what was delivered apologies there but um what it goes to show is that um over the last couple of years apartments um are becoming an increasingly important part of the delivery and indeed i dropped somebody off during the week who was renting an apartment um in knock lion here in dublin and um it was a big development that's coming on stream in the grounds where a former Irish Taoiseach, Liam Cosgrave, once lived. Um, but it was amazing to see all of these young people taking suitcases out of cars, um, renting these apartments. Um, great to see because, you know, the rental market has to play an important part in the housing solution as well. We can't just focus totally on social and affordable. Um, the rental market is important. Owner-occupier is important. But, um, and I, I made that point last week that we, we've got to look at the housing market in the whole rather than just picking specific pieces of it. Uh, but I have to say, it cheered me up during the week to see all of these young people
1: um, moving into rental properties Jim, of high quality. You, can I ask you about the that holistic picture that you just described there? We, we have to look at the thing in total in the round, just as in you've taken us through in, in, I think, very interesting detail there, the numbers. My scan of the Irish media today didn't give me an impression consistent with the one that you've just given me, which I, 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 and I don't doubt the one that you've just given me. And to summarize it, you regarded it, I think, as reasonably a reasonably positive story in terms of completions of dwellings. The stories that I saw majoring in the media this morning was that the Irish government is failing abysmally in the area of social housing and, more generally, that they're still completely flailing around not being at all successful with uh, the housing crisis. I presume you think that that's an unfair read of this data in particular. My other question would be, do you think there's anything that this lot could do right now and they would get any credit for?
2: Well, I mean, they set said- Social housing targets, um, they have revised those targets down a couple of times and are still going to fail to achieve the most recent downward adjustment. So, th- th- you know, there is a systemic failure in terms of delivery of social housing. Um, I'm, I'm not sure why that is the case. Um, I, I guess it's because the resources are not available to deliver social housing. And a lot of the resources, the construction capacity is being used to deliver rental and owner-occupier housing. Um, and, you know, I guess from the government's point of view, by setting these social housing targets, which I guess it has to do, but it is setting itself up um, to be beaten with a stick, I mean, when it fails to deliver. But the, the, the overall picture, and maybe this hasn't an awful lot to do with government in terms of the delivery of um you know, scheme housing, single housing and apartments um, is, is still growing quite strong. Well, sorry, 2022 was a good year.
1: Do we live, so, Do we live in a an good- economy, Jim, where the government can be responsible for... Solving the housing crisis,
2: yeah, Chris. As I was saying that, I I kind of thought to myself, Here was I a week ago criticizing government over its failure to address the housing problem. Um, and here I am now saying that um, you know you can't blame government for everything, but so I I think the truth is somewhere. uh, Um, my thinking is clearly a little bit muddled. I think that the truth is somewhere in between, I mean. I was mentioning last week that we we, we do need to address issues like um, the cost of delivery, the planning system, the NIMBYism, and all of that stuff. Um, And and that is true. Government has got to address all of those things. But uh, what government also has to do, I think, the, the construction industry has displayed, again, that, you know, given the circumstances, it can actually deliver high levels of housing output and they the the industry is experiencing capacity constraints. So we also need to look at the labour supply um, of skilled and unskilled workers into the construction sector. So, you know, I, I said last week as well that I reckon there was about 20 different things that need to be done to deliver the sort of housing uh, that we need but I would just to summarise the point I really I'm really trying to make is that 2022 was a reasonably good year after a number of dismal years in terms of delivery it is moving in the right direction but we need we still need to be building a lot more houses as I say somewhere between 40 and 60,000 is the annual requirement out to 2030 based on that demand supply imbalance and I think it's incumbent on government to do everything it possibly can to help the construction industry and the developer classes to deliver what needs to be delivered. Because I've said it to the point of boredom in this podcast, that housing economically, socially, politically, it is, in my view, the number one issue. Uh, But I think we have to give some credit where credit is due in terms of what happened last year.
0: Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: Okay, thanks for that, Jim. And, you know, I could go off on one as I usually do at this point by wondering or asking the question how much of the housing problem is soluble by government? Obviously, a, a trite answer would be the government should just go and build lots of houses itself if it's a private sector failure. But would it then inco- you know, just face up to the same problems that the private sector faces, which is a cost problem, uh, a supply of labor problem, uh, a material shortage problem, supply chain problems, and all the rest of it. So it's an open question for me. I'm not going to ask you to answer it today because we've talked about it too much already. But I wonder just how much solving the housing crisis is is actually directly in the hands of government. It can do so much, but I wonder if it can do everything. Let's move the discussion on. And uh, one of the things that I wanted to mention today, a very brief mention, it's something that we talked about ages ago on this podcast, is the war on drugs. And we both agreed that whatever jurisdiction you look at, the war on drugs was lost years ago, if not decades ago. And it's one of the most stupid policies being pursued by governments to a greater or lesser extent, everywhere. Our prisons are full of people who have committed drugs offences, and in many cases, they should not be there. And people are always going to consume this stuff, and it needs to be regulated, and it's like alcohol used to be, like tobacco used to be, actually, and all, all that good stuff. And that governments should be scaling back the war on drugs rather than intensifying it. And lo and behold, here in the UK today, we have an announcement that the war on drugs is to be ratcheted up. This time, the target is on something called nitrous oxide. And it's something that I have to say is a bit of a dinosaur in this area. I know nothing about other than I've seen with some mystification until it was explained to me by a younger person, what these little empty cylinders that we see littering our inner city and uh, and suburban streets, Uh, they contain this thing, nitrous oxide, which is also known as laughing gas. And it apparently gives people a high if you inhale it. And I think that you were equally puzzled by the appearance of these things on our streets recently, weren't you, Jane?
2: I have to admit, Chris, what I'm about to say now shows how much of a dinosaur I am. Um, I use these little canisters for pumping my racing bike. You know, if you're out in the middle of nowhere and you get a puncture, you mend it. Um, If you inject this stuff into the tire, it'll pump it up very quickly, gas, gas. and it's a similar canister, and I was seeing all these canisters lying around, and I was thinking to myself, a lot of people cycling around Dublin at the moment. <laughs> I,
1: I, I will not say anything at this point, Jim, other, Chris, than, other than don't. to say that, it, that there's nothing illegal about these canisters, either for your tyres or for or, or for giving you a, a, a high. Um, I wonder if do they contain the same gas? These. I don't.
2: don't I I, I don't think so. I don't think so. Maybe
1: one of our younger listeners can enlighten us on that. But anyway,
2: Uh, I I have a load of them in a box in the press here, but
1: um, I won't go and take a look. Well, if you the ones for the bicycle, okay. If you bring the bike over on the car to the UK, be careful what kind of cylinder you bring over, because there is a proposal (laughs) from the UK government today who have noticed that these things are quite legal, apparently, and they want to make it a criminal offence. To, uh, to be in possession and use this stuff, which is just, in my humble opinion, absolutely nuts and is consistent with a government that's flailing around generally across all types of policies, but in particular with respect to its drug policies. Uh, move, moving away from uh, the UK's war on drugs uh, to the UK's war on itself, Rishi Sunak uh, is having an away day or perhaps an away couple of days Ahead of an important speech, I think towards the end of the week, uh, by the Chancellor Jeremy Hunt, and this away day or away couple of days is apparently to brainstorm how to get the economy going. Um, I wonder if they shouldn't be consulting the new chatbot for ideas on this. I'll talk about that in a second. But the the idea that they could that they need to do this is quite quite extraordinary and is re- a reflection. On just how much sunak in particular, but the government in general is is flailing around, and the particular fight that they have on their hands one of one of many is over tax cuts because Liz Truss has reappeared, or at least some anonymous spokesperson on behalf of the former Prime minister who's been very quiet since her resignation. And uh, she apparently believes that her tax cuts were the right policy, that disastrous quasi Quateng budget, and that the only reason why they failed was because they weren't given the necessary political backing in the House of Parliament. And the one thing... I would say about all of this is that she's not actually completely wrong, because it is possible that tax cuts sometimes do boost growth. It may be a sugar high, it may be very short term, but sometimes structurally, if taxes are too high, you need to get them down. Uh, The problem, of course, is that the Tory party, the Conservative Party, simply won't choose. They don't understand trade-offs. They don't understand themselves, so therefore the rest of the country doesn't understand either. In order to make a tax cutting plan work, given the state of the fiscal side of things here in the UK, you have to have spending cuts. Um, And otherwise, the fiscal arithmetic just simply doesn't work at all. And uh, there's a quote in the FT today. Liz believes that the policy was right, but that she didn't get the political backing she needed. She is still convinced we need to get out of this box of low growth. And it's on that latter one that that she's absolutely right. You need to do something. Uh, but you can't have the 45 billion of tax cuts that she wanted without, given the fiscal arithmetic, 45 billion cutting government spending. And there is no Conservative MP that anybody can identify that is willing at the moment to cut spending by a pound, let alone 45 billion pounds. And so it goes. Uh, the, 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 the extraordinary uh, inability of the government to understand basic arithmetic, I think, uh, boggles the mind. And what they're going to come up with in this away day, I can't possibly imagine because in order to boost growth, they've got to make some very tough decisions, not unlike Ireland, the planning system in in the u k is not fit for purpose. you can't build anything here because of partly because of that planning system and other reasons. NIMBYism is absolutely at dare i say pandemic levels you've got to tackle all of these things, but every time the Conservative Party tries to do something in one area, one faction or another within its party says, no, you can't do that. So they're not able to do anything. So I await this these great growth initiatives with great interest, but they are needed. It has to be said that somebody somewhere, whether it's this government or the next government or whoever has got to come up with a plan for the UK economy to start growing again. Otherwise, this this gradual sinking into... Uh, what one FT commentator last weekend called the slough of despond uh, on the economy is is just going to continue. The other thing, of course, that's going on in the UK is uh, the sleaze and the allegations of uh, tax impropriety surrounding a former Chancellor of the Exchequer, uh, Nazim Zahawe. And only today we've had. Uh, a senior official, I think maybe even the head of the UK's equivalent of the revenue commissioners. That's what you call it in Ireland here. thats called HMRC, His Majesty's Revenue and Customs. And uh, Nazim Zahawi de- described his tax affairs as being in error, that he made uh, an error, um, uh, but a mistake that wasn't deliberate. And this HMRC person has come out and said in front of some House of Commons committee that there's no such thing as an error. We don't fine errors. Um, uh, and this gentleman was fined, this ex-Chancellor, Nazim Zahawi. And so he's been contradicted by the one of the big tax bosses here. So this one, I think, is going to run. Uh, my forecast is that Zahawi won't last more than a few days or perhaps a couple of weeks at best, depending on how the investigation goes. But it's just more of the same here, Jim. My final comment about Sleaze, just to draw your attention to something that received no publicity whatsoever this week, an MP stood up in the House of Commons the day before yesterday, I think, and it was a Conservative MP, a Tory, not a Labour uh, MP, and under the privilege uh, of Parliament of the House of Commons, so he can't actually be sued for libel for saying this, so I have to be very careful about how I report this, he named... All the London law firms, who he says are still uh, essentially acting for Russian oligarchs, isn't and that and, and basically alleging that the, the Russian money is still flowing through London, isn't that incredible? That is absolutely incredible. Uh, Can't say I'm
2: terribly surprised. Um, yeah. Okay. Stuff. Let's, Chris, on, on. on this on this side of the water, um, we, we have discussed the Pascal Donohu issue. And um, I think we, we have certainly tended to downplay it in a pretty significant way, you know, while accepting that um, he did wrong, that he made mistakes. Um, but the, the magnitude of money involved is absolutely tiny. And I guess my view would have been that, um, I think yours as well, that really government should get on with the the issues that really concern people at the moment um, outside of the realm of petty politicking, which is housing, health, um, and so on, uh, cost of living. Um, So these are the issues. But anyway, um, Sinn Féin, you know, continue to push, 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 as do people before profit, as do the people in the Labour Party. So it really is developing into just a political football at the moment Uh, but irony of irony over the last few days um, it has come to light that Sinn Féin has also made a number of errors in inverted commas um, in terms of its election expenses and um, it has had to submit some alterations to the standard in public office SIPO and, and yet, it continues to beat the drum about Pascal. As I said in my introduction earlier, uh, the moral of the story here is you shouldn't throw stones in the glass house. And um, it's uh, it's 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 kind of interesting. Um, yeah, it's a nothing. We,
1: we described Pascal Donoghue's affairs uh, or, or errors as, in my words, a nothing burger. That's my word of the moment. And I think, in in fairness and in completeness, we we are quite right to mention that uh, Sinn Féin have been caught with uh, an election expenses issue. Uh, the Irish Times for once seems to have done a very good piece of investigative journalism, finding out these sorts of things. It originally, uh, before this week, before this latest news broke, had found a €7,000 error, much bigger in terms of magnitude than uh, Pascal's uh, error. Uh, to do with an opinion poll that Sinn Féin paid for, but apparently didn't declare in the right way. They've discovered two other mistakes, much smaller than that, sort of orders of magnitude similar to the ones that Pascal Donohue has uh, been found to have committed. So not a big amount, uh, another nothing burger, but for the sake of completeness, I think it is worth recording of keeping it in the public domain to remind people that everybody makes mistakes. And the two relate to some MEP election expenses was one and the other was a misreporting of a euro amount instead of a sterling amount or the other way around I can't quite remember which way it was but it was t-
2: it was th- the bill was paid in sterling uh it was
1: reported in sterling but it should have been reported in euro so another couple of nothing burgers but given yeah. the fuss that they've made about Pascal Donohue's. Uh, not very much uh mistake. I think that it is it is important to at least uh, recognize that. One other thing that I wanted to talk about today, um, which actually, Jim, we've run out of time, so I'm going to hold it over to the next podcast. I've got a lot to say about this new chatbot and generative artificial intelligence in general. Uh, there's, there's, there's so much stuff out there now. Uh, I tried to use this thing yesterday and all day the website for it was unavailable because everybody is using it at the moment Microsoft have just invested 10 billion dollars in it so this is a really big story but given that I think I need more than a couple of minutes to go through what I would like to say and make the points and ask the questions I'm going to conclude in a completely different area still tech related of sorts I'm going to conclude with asking you a question about Facebook or Meta as as it is more properly known They announced uh, yesterday, I think, Nick Clegg, an ex-UK politician, an ex-UK cabinet minister, actually, who is now the head of public affairs, I think he is for Meta. I heard him explaining on radio this morning. That Donald Trump is back on Facebook and it's quite convoluted. They've got some new rules associated with uh, what you can do on Facebook now and a number of strikes and you're out. And they've got a special rule for Trump, which appears to be one strike and he's out. Uh, what do you think? Do you think that Facebook is right to do it in this way? Do you think people like Trump should be banned from these platforms? Or are you a free speecher and let and let, let it all go hang?
2: Uh, to, to, to a certain extent, Chris, I mean, Trump has aspirations to be the next president of America. Um, and, you know, he's he will be pushing, trying to push his candidacy over the coming months, I assume. Um, and as a consequence of that, you know, in democracy, um, I think it's incumbent on media to allow everybody have a voice. But there is a caveat. Um, clearly, there is a line that should not be crossed in terms of inciting violence, hate, etc. You know, we, we cannot allow that happen. But um, I, I kind of I heard Nick Clegg explaining and uh, to me it sounded pretty rational. That, um, you know, given that he's in the political arena, he needs a voice, but that there will be significant restrictions placed upon him and anybody else. And I think that's correct. And provided I have no problem with Trump coming back onto Facebook, probably because I don't use Facebook anyway, so I won't be exposed to it. But, um, you know, it's it's. uh, the political discourse, but uh, he will have to be monitored very, very carefully, as should anybody else, to be honest. But I guess what makes people like Trump uh, particularly interesting in this regard is that, you know, they have millions of followers, so they can be incredibly influential. Whereas I could come out and say something, it would influence nothing. But if Trump says it, it influences millions of people. and That's
1: where the danger arises, I think. Oh, Jim, I think you underestimate your influence, to be honest, mate. One of the things I would say is that these are, uh, although they're publicly listed companies on the stock exchange, they're essentially private entities. And provided they obey the law of the land in which they're operating, they should be free to do whatever they want, whether they should be free to ban people, they should be free to platform people. It's entirely up to these companies. If they were state broadcasters, it would be different. I think that that there would should be different rules for state broadcasters when it comes to balance and things like that. But I do think in the interests of free speech, we wouldn't allow Donald Trump onto this podcast. And we should be free to say Donald Trump can't come onto this podcast. Or we might take a different decision. We might invite Nigel Farage on one day and and get probably presumably a lot of criticism for doing so. But we should be free to, to have whoever we want and say whatever we want on this podcast, subject to the fact that uh, the uh, proviso that we, we obey the law. Where I do have a beef with these co- all of these companies, whether they are public, private, state entities or not, is the extent to which they allow interference from foreign actors. It's quite clear that Russia really has, over the years, had an awful lot of influence on these kinds of platforms. And I still don't know whether they are doing enough to head off that Russian influence one of the things that really interests me at the moment is the is the connection. Uh, we've spoken many, many times before about how if you if you knew that somebody was a pro-Trump person, you you, you know all their other beliefs. If you know somebody is an anti-vaxxer, you know all their other beliefs. Um, and one of the things that anti-vaxxers clearly are very much in favor of at the moment is Putin. It's one of those curious connections that if you have an anti-vax belief, I'm not saying it's all anti-vaxxers, please don't get on my case about this. But there is a strong tendency for the anti-vaxxers to be pro-Putin. It's just a weird, weird connection. You can see that of all places in Australia at the moment, at the tennis, where um, there's a connection between pro-Putin, pro-Russia protests and anti-vaxxers. And the connection there with what we were just talking about is that Russia, Putin, has been misinforming anti-vaxxers. He's been fueling that whole debate, mischief-making, and also seeding pro-Russian beliefs within the anti-vax community. And that goes back to something that I will talk about next time, which is the way in which you interpret things that come at you from the internet, from technology, and not least from these new chatbots or from these older companies like Facebook, is that we have this incredible tendency to believe what we read. And we do it in an uncritical, unfact checking way. And this is the way in which these foreign actors exploit our tendency to want to believe whatever it is we happen to be reading at the time. That's the sinister stuff that I don't think they're doing enough to counter. So I'll shut up there. Jim, it's been a great chat. Yes, Chris. Um, A couple of things I want
2: you to think about ahead of our discussion of chatbot um, next time. One is, would Shakespeare have evolved in a chatbot environment. And secondly, as somebody who teaches a college course in Smurfit Business School in UCD, um, I set assignments, I correct assignments. Um, how can I determine if those assignments were written by a person or a machine? So think about that for me, okay? I will,
1: I will attempt to answer both questions or at least suggest how we might approach answering both of those questions next. Time, because I think it is the issue of the moment, actually. I think it transcends an awful lot of the other things that we're talking about. This thing is, uh, this sort of thing is going to upend our lives. And I think you asked two great questions. There are many other questions, of course, that that should be asked. So what somebody once said to me in terms of good salesmanship, the way in which you're a good salesman is that you leave your audience or your potential market always wanting more. So let's hopefully, <laughs> hope, let's hope that we have uh, sowed the seeds of a good discussion for next time that people will want to listen to.
2: You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power, on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify and other good podcast platforms.